Oh, I've, I've turned uh, the recorder back on for, for our call. So, uh, thank you for uh, coming on to that last call with uh, Japan. That was good. Sure, thanks for having me. Do you want to continue with that, or do you want to uh, go off in some other direction? Well, do you know what is so interesting? It's just all... You know, sometimes when you're when you're into something, when when you've got something on the mind, everything you hear relates to it. So mm-hmm. that um, dropping the weapon, letting down the banner, unbolting the door. What was the fourth one? Uh, filling in the trench. Filling in the trench. Uh, um, it's all for me. I, I I hear that, and I just think self and non-self. It's just like letting down the barriers that we create. We build to create a sense of self because we think that we're safer and more secure if we build up this quite rigid fixed um identity and then actually it's the the opposite and that the real freedom comes through giving it away and knocking it down and letting it go uh-huh. um which I mean, you know, because this is sort of all we've been speaking about for the last month. <laughs> I, I apologise if my phone calls are getting really tediously repetitive. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. In fact, that's the whole point, Matt, is that uh, this, is, this is actually part of the training that's been known for quite a long time for friends to get together and keep talking Dhamma with each other. Because every time we talk about it, it goes a little deeper and a little deeper. That mm. in fact, I've gotten quite a lot uh, of Dhamma by talking about Dhamma on the internet. That it's really, really valuable for me. You think you're getting something out of it. Wait until you see. I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've gotten to. I've gotten a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> good, good, good. Um... I had um, on Saturday, I did a, um, on, on a kind of practice level, something which I haven't done before and which has been quite interesting um, in relation to this, to this co- ongoing conversation. So I did a day long retreat, uh, like uh-huh. 12 hours or so around uh, self-inquiry. So very much within a not, Although the, the, the kind of teacher, the facilitator was aware of kind of more non-Buddhist perspective and practice traditions, it was very much based within um, Buddhist ideas of emptiness and non-self and using self-inquiry as a tool and means to explore uh, that Okay. And it was very interesting, I have to say. And actually, it was, it was interesting since then, my practice, like the kind of returning to the, um, to the kind of the practice that I'm more uh, used to, an, anapanasati, and, but kind of infusing it with that inquiry has been really, really rich. So but basically, it, to kind of... Go ahead. The, the practice that was sort of outlined and that I I did for that day was, you know, who am I? And then 
what it's something quite interesting happens and I've, I've not really seen i've never done a practice that does this before and i think it's what happens in koan practice as well it's like you ask with it and it reminds me of like that metaphor about a thorn to remove a thorn it's like you ask something using your thinking mind but somehow it just it's like if you it's like asking that question and then being receptive to a kind of non-knowing to to the and, answer and, and the question is who am i yeah it just seems to like open up this um open you up into a kind of like into a into a into a samadhi like into a state of just this kind of bright clear space and then you're in that bright clear space and then a thought pops in and then it's kind of like well who thought that thought so it's not you don't kind of stick to that who am i question rigidly it's like you ask that to kind of get your foot in the door to kind of shut down the kind of gears of the mind body enough to kind of open it up and then a sensation arise you know arises and it's like okay well who what is that sensation who's feeling that sensation and then you realize that that's a thought that you've had it's like who asked that thought and you basically it takes you on this my experience of it was kind of going on this journey of kind of seeing basically the aggregates arise and pass feeling form feeling uh, perception kind of having a more bare consciousness of something seeing thoughts and the and the the Chita Sankaras and, and they're seeing all of these things emerge and just going on this like almost like eternal regression through it all so kind of going from here to here to here and all these little thoughts that seem to be a self but then you realize that because actually they've become an object in the mind it's not the self it's a kind of object and you just kind of keep going and it expands and that uh, I have a question now yeah and that is um, because I have talked to other people who have uh, are some have some experience with it. This sounds like you're making it closer to what you already know about the Dhamma and that you're using that to reaffirm that which you already know. But that there's other ways that people experience this. Who am I? in a completely different way than the way that you're describing it. Well, hold, let me let me finish up because and then okay. tell me because okay. it went in two halves. Like the first few hours of practice, it was very much like this, what I was describing. And I suppose it almost felt like a little bit of a like noticing practice. It's like you're noticing everything kind of arise and you're applying in you're right. That's actually quite, that's quite excellent. Most people, in fact, will use who am I as an archaeological expedition into personality, which means they just get stuck into a state of hindrances. Yes, it no, so it, wasn't, it actually it felt very blissful kind of seeing these things, seeing what they were, what they were and what they were not uh -huh. and what they are is a very briefly arising thing that then passes and that builds up a momentum and it builds a lot of satisfaction and pity and it becomes a it became like that and then the kind of second half of the day it was like 
it was just like everything expanded enormously and all of those thoughts no longer all of those sensations and feelings and perceptions and thoughts and ideas and voices it's like none of them carried any stickiness or it was like it was like the idea that any of them was a self or that any of them should be taken too seriously or too personally had been revealed as being so outlandish and ridiculous because they were seen as being these this series of things that arise and pass without you choosing it's not like you notice something because you choose to notice something or you think something because you choose to think something it's actually what was what was very insightful and i hadn't really experienced before was just how like i suppose you could say like conditioned everything is or like thought comes without you choosing to think it or let's say you deliberately say i want to think a thought because you say i'm going to ask a question whatever it is it's, it's like even that volition comes from a previous condition and you such suddenly in this process you lost i lost all sense of a kind of like central doer or thinker or breather or decider it it, it just seemed like actually the the things which we confuse for self, the perceptions, they actually, they come and they go and you don't, you're not in control of that process. And then at that And point, the most important word is process. Yes. There's well, no it, you in there. At any stage along the game, there is no you, but the process is there. Yes. And even process is too much. It's like, pro, it's like processes. It's like plural. Mm -hmm. And actually the plural aspect was quite a big aspect of it. Like the sense of like the multiplicity of the self. Cause like a thought comes and then another thought responds to it. And then it's, it's like these, <laughs> these two things and the way that within, you know, like the, the Walt Whitman poem, like I contain multitudes, you know, that line it's, you really get that sense sometimes of how, those multitudes exist within something which we conveniently... The Buddha would talk about it is, look how fast the mind is. Fast. It contains everything. <laughs> it's like it contains everything you could imagine it to contain. Or you could imagine, you know, that you can conceive of. But then, anyway, then once the experience... Then why can't people imagine and, and um, uh, uh, conceive of being happy? <laughs> this is this is the wonderful thing then within that kind of like within that lighter more kind of sense of mind from coming at it from that more like um empty perspective like seeing it as not a fixed thing but seeing it as something that can take on many forms you then get to you, you then get to shape it don't you you then get to say like right well this you know, this mind contains multitudes, can do, feel, be anything that, that the human mind can think of. Why not cultivate joy? Why not cultivate loving kindness, etc.? cetera? Um, but anyway, just to kind of finish the report, it ended with, <laughs> in the second half of it, just all of these things became so much less sticky. All of these arisings and passings just stopped really grabbing the, any attention and it just expanded and expanded into this very into a state which I'm not unfamiliar with from the from the practice already it was just and what that's also another interesting thing for me is seeing experimenting with something which in theory 
is a very different type of practice, but actually realizing that they are they are different pointers and different ways in to exploring the same thing. Precisely. Okay. Uh, one way of saying it is is that the um, the intention is to um, give an experience mm-hmm. to another. But we do not know how to give. We cannot speak in experience. We speak in concepts. Mm. So I have to give you a set of concepts that if you understand the concepts the way that I explain them, in the way that I'm explaining my own experience, I create concepts. I tell you about those concepts, and if you understand that language, you can unpack it so that you can have that same experience. Mm. Where another one who's trying to give you that experience will give you a completely different set of metaphors and um, uh, approaches, but he's trying to teach you that same experience, Mm. which can be then understood to be at one moment or to be actually a part of this enormous flood of reality that's happening all the time that we normally don't tap into mm. because, because, we're, we, because we're thinking uh-huh. and all of the all of that flood we just take the bits which are relevant to prop up our little sense of self and and actually if we yes exactly it, and if we knock down the the walls and fill in the moat and <laughs> then we can actually expand and that expansion is is so wonderful it's so joyous it's such a kind of beautiful <laughs> it's unbelievably and therefore is unmentionably yes it cannot be spoken of and that's the problem the Tao yeah. that can be said is not the Tao yeah we can't talk about it but we and so giving one that experience is very hard because we can't even speak about it yeah, but it does have a few indications, like the word "universe" or "universal," or "at one month," or "joining with it," or "be here now." These are all ways of describing it, but these are concepts, and it's hard to give the student the actual experience. Mm. And so, who am I? Is one of the ways of tapping into that, but basically. It's actually the same thing as "Aha, I see you, Mara." It's the mm. same practice. Mm. What is this? What the hell? You know, it's just that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the Navy version of saying it. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, the Marines say something else. <laughs> Um, it was very interesting. This morning, I had a, a really, uh, a really lovely sit, and it was, it was going through the kind of the steps of Anapanasati. But the, it was interesting. But as I sat down, the first before anything else, I actually I asked, I asked, like, you know, that that sense of inquiry and about sort of investigation of the construct of self stayed throughout all the steps so it so with the you know the the first tetrad and breathing 
and breathing into the body and experiencing the body and calming the body it it was all of those things but with just the the investigative dial was just turned up higher than it usually is great that's good i'm glad that uh, yeah that's an important part is to begin that investigation that is in fact a really good way of understanding right view is to begin to investigate look at what's going on that question what the hell that's the question keep asking that and keep living it keep mm. looking at what's going on but we have to remember to do that mm. and so but that's the trick is get into that state where we can keep asking that question a lot yes but it was it was interesting i you know the like the the relationship between say investigating and calm abiding or investigating and abiding or investigation and samadhi and you um well, yeah when one is good the other is good right like mm -hmm. it, they are so mutually uh, you know you could say dependently co-arising <laughs> like they they um yes yeah and that was the other that was the other thing actually that was very apparent during during that during that investigation was like how 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 the 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 parts that we think of as the self like the, the co-arising nature of them so it's like sensation and consciousness it's like they you could try and separate them, but you can't really. Like in when you in the actual looking at it, you can't separate the sensation from the consciousness of the sensation. That's correct. Um, in fact, the consciousness of the sensation is the sensation. Yes. And there are other things, and that's interesting. That's at what kind of sensation is a sensation if you're not conscious of it? The sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, and then also like the, so, but that's interesting. Dependent origination and time is interesting because the sensation, the, the sensation and the consciousness of sensation, it, you see the kind of dependent arising of those things and they're happening. You can't separate them in time. Right, like you can't say, well, now I'm having now. There's the sensation, and then a moment later, there's the consciousness of the sensation. You, the, that's the problem with concepts is that it takes ourselves a whole lot longer to say something than it does to experience it. Yeah, but then the, there were other things that arose in that kind of investigative space that I would describe as like dependently co-arising, but they happen over time. Mm -hmm. So like, and actually, so like, for example, the meditative process, for example, like choosing to follow the breath or choosing to like lean into joy or choosing to shift from a kind of coarser physical rushy type of joy into a into a stiller calmer joy for example these are things which like the process of uh anapanasati trains one in mm -hmm. as you go through 
those steps. It's all, I, it, it's almost got the sense in this investigation that like, just because those things might be separated in time, like one moment I'm doing this and the next moment I'm doing this, there is still a kind of like dependent arising in terms of how they relate to each other. Cause it's like you, you get into a groove and you move through a habit pattern mm-hmm. and the first step kind of leads to the next or even something like walking downstairs and make, for example, when I finish this phone call, I will go downstairs and I will make a cup of tea <laughs> because that's what I do every time after I finish a phone call with you and also before I leave the house because I'm going to go and uh, spend the day with my kids. So that, that, go on. To follow on with that, if yeah. you don't go down and, st- and fix yourself a cup of tea after this phone call, how yeah. will you feel? I'll feel fine. And I probably like, it's fun to play with it, but it's also fun to appreciate (laughs) that those grooves exist. Right. Right. But here's the point that I'm making because some people in fact will have gotten already that groove so much that if they don't do that ritualized routine, then they feel that they should have done that ritualized routine. And so that'll use that as a source of bad feelings. That's why I brought it up is because the last call that you weren't the first part of it was that very thing, a cup of tea. People in London tend to do that. (laughs) Some people miss it and feel good and others miss it and feel bad. That's the kind of ritual it is. Yeah. I bet there is at one time or another, you could have been feeling bad or felt bad or, or a twinge when you missed a cup of tea. Yes, I could have gone, oh, it's really unfair today. I haven't had time to do the things I need to do to feel okay. Yeah. Exactly. But also, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. And also I could have done the same thing about, uh, about practice. Like that's something that's, I feel like, uh, you know, like a year ago, 18 months ago, you know, if I didn't have the time that I, wanted in the morning to practice that would really annoy me <laughs> which is it's such an absurdity isn't it it's like losing uh, the bigger picture um but yeah but it also made me realize that like a lot of the sense of self is um it's a momentum caused by those habits yes um, and we and can eventually come out of the habits. We are not that old personality that we have developed. Yes. And we can retrain those and habits. We can retrain. So, also, like meditation, for example, is a sort of habit training. We, we yes, just... and if you're practicing correctly, then you are uh, training in the habits that you want to have. If you're not training correctly... Then your training is I, at a certain time of day, I'm supposed to squat on the floor and look like uh, uh, this for a while. And if I don't do that, I'll feel bad. Yeah. As opposed to if we're actually practicing correctly in our meditation, including remembering to take a deep breath and smile. You can do that whether you're sitting on the floor or not. Yeah. And so the squatting on the floor ritualized thing can actually, when we miss it, lead to suffering or it can lead to joy your choice (laughs) and if we're attached to it 
And that's the old way of living. That's part of our personality. And people do. They develop a personality that includes um, sitting meditation so that when they can't do it, they feel bad. Yeah. Because they're supposed to do it. This is all part of what Freud talks about as the superego. Yes. We're supposed to do things that are good for us. So if you don't do the things that are good for us, and that's the logic, but that's the logic of a child. Yeah, and and then people get into a lot of self-worth and stuff, don't they? Especially around meditation, it's like, oh no, I'm... I've got no discipline or I'm a, I'm a lazy person or I've got no resolve. I've got no will because I, I and all of those are hindrances. Yes. And all of those are victimhood positions. Absolutely. But then, so that, that's a certain habit pattern, but then another habit pattern for someone else could be, Uh, you know the opposite it could be just being very lazy right I'm trying to think of a slightly less kind of loaded loaded phrase than that but like um... no motivation or why bother or it doesn't really matter it doesn't have that much value in it which is just another real way of saying the last time I did it I didn't do it correctly and therefore I got no benefit and therefore, yeah. why do it again? Why bother? Yeah. Okay. That's actually what is generally referred to as sloth. Yeah. Or some, laziness. Some, some doubt mixed in as well, right? Because if Got it's doubt like, mixed right in there, right? These things are not pure. Yeah. But and it's is- also got just a little bit of aversion built into it, and naturally, it also has a quality of wanting something you don't have. Or you wouldn't have even tried meditation in the first place. So, yeah, these uh, uh, hindrances are are they interconnected. Mm-hmm. Leads us into actually a brick wall because these are just individual bricks in the wall. But they're mm-hmm. all directly connected together strongly. And once again, to go back to the thorn to remove a thorn metaphor, it's like we need to, to hijack almost the selfing process we need to hijack the momentum the 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 sankara like we need to build positive habits and we Mm -hmm. need to build positive um almost like we need to build a positive self-view and positive habit patterns before we can let go of it right like completely I would say yes, but both sides of that is a process. Yeah. Okay, which is in fact uh, uh, the the quality of changing itself in the sense of as as one moves through things, they're moving both away from the old habits and moving into the way of the new habits. It's all the same kind of process. Yes. It's like moving a car down the street. It's moving away from that street down there and it's moving towards this one at the same uh, pace. Yeah. And so it depends upon which way are you looking. Are you looking at the car coming or are you looking at the car going? Yeah. Okay. So in in that regard, it's, it's basically the same thing that as we train in new habits, the old habits 
you can actually go to the point of saying that when uh, old habits start to die out, that means the associated neurons with those begin to die off through lack of need and lack of use while you're spawning uh, the birth of new neurons that are in fact in the new habit pattern that we want to develop. You see, many years ago, the, the, uh, the neuroscientists thought that the mind was kind of fully developed by the age of five. And they kept changing it and changing it and changing it and recognizing, no, the mind is actually a dynamic thing. And that right throughout life, we continue to develop new nerve cells based upon new learning. Yeah. But the danger is for us to stop learning. Yeah. It is. I, I find that all very, what's it called? The mycelium, the, 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 it's a certain coating, neural pathways develop. And then through repetition, they develop this coating, which allows the electrical current to move through that same channel stronger and stronger and easier and easier and stronger and easier. Excellent way of saying it precisely. But you really like meditation is, uh, especially something like, Anapanasati, or the, the, the steps of it, which does have that kind of sequential process, which is something that I often really enjoy. Like there are certain sits, I mean, I've described this to you before, where it's like, where it's like, a, a, I mean, I, I don't actually drive a car, so this isn't a really very natural metaphor for me to use. But like, <laughs> you know, um, driving like a sports car where the gear, you're moving the gears smoothly as you kind of go from one speed and gear to another. And it just seems to like, you know, move through these different paces really beautifully. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with anapanasati, as you move from within a tetrad and between te- tetrads, you get that kind of smooth, natural, ease, easeful transition as you're experiencing the pity. And then on an exhale, you kind of drop it and feel into the sukha. And it just, you know, it, it can feel like this very lovely smooth thing you get the sense that that is very much like these grooves in the the mind that you're creating and and strengthening yes you see that's one of the things that people have an idea that uh an example would be what is first jhana Mm -hmm. and they do not understand that this first jhana that the buddha is talking about is actually a natural kind of state Mm -hmm. And that what it means is, is that we have the ability to really focus in on and paying attention to something that's in the here now, as Mm -hmm. opposed to uh, uh, daydreaming and not paying attention to anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the basic point. And and humans do that on a natural basis all the time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of kids wind up daydreaming in school because they're not getting any pleasure out of it. Okay, but we and so the daydreaming winds out being being pleasurable, but sometimes the kids are accused of uh, uh, of being uh, daydreaming in class, where in fact they're looking out the window and they find something really curious or interesting, maybe even educational out there going on, mm-hmm. and they're not paying attention to what's going on in the head or in the classroom. They're out, they're out in the real world, mm-hmm. but they're doing it vicariously. So. Uh, we have to understand then that we may not know what's going on in anybody else's mind. We can only begin to understand how our own mind works, recognizing mm-hmm. that everybody's mind works kind of the same way. But that doesn't mean that we know anybody else's mind. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but there's a lot of signals and whatnot to use. But meanwhile, uh, this, this quality of learning how to be here now is something that is not really taught in school. It is in my class. <laughs> we have, we have uh, I've got like a really nice little me meditation chime. We do, you know, we do, we do sitting still and, and being here now in like short doses that they actually enjoy. Great. Great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. That's uh, mm -hmm. not, not the usual um, uh, classroom environment, but it's good that we, and in fact, I think that if you keep practicing and doing that, that it will become more common. I really see that humanity can come out of our old ways of doing things. We're, in fact, doing that. What with pits and starts. But yeah. humanity can come out of religion. We don't need religion. Religion, in fact, uh, some of the, they point out uh, the disadvantages of it, along with the fact that religion originally had some reason and purpose and there were some advantages to it so let's see if we can find what advantages there are which in fact is everyone suffers and we know we're suffering and we're trying to look for a way out of that mm. that's what in fact is like um uh in in uh mu muslim it has pride and submission in Christianity, it's sin and forgiveness. Mm. But there, we're all looking, and then dukkha and dukkha naroda. So, in fact, though, it's all really the same thing as a human state or a human condition. And we don't really have to even, in fact, change everybody from Buddhist or into Buddhist from uh, whatever religion, that every religion itself has the right stuff right at the core if yeah. the people will investigate it. Here's an example that I've got a Muslim friend who uh, we were on a call when an Islamist came up to him off the, out on the street because he was out there trying to be away from his family. An Islamist walked up to him, tried to take his cell phone away from him to find out what he was doing. And he says that in Tunisia that, that they've got like that, that they're out there on the, on the street policing things and so i had the idea well why don't you do it like this when these guys are behaving that way then we can ask them would allah approve of what you are doing because the answer will always be that allah is merciful allah will forgive but you see now he's walked right into the trap why? Because if Allah means that you have to get forgiveness from what you're doing, that means that Allah actually does not approve of what you're doing. And that if you are, in fact, uh, going to submit to Allah, then what you're actually doing by being an Islamist is by practicing pride. You're not actually being submissive to God. You're, uh, you're prideful about it. And so... If you want to um, be in accordance with the will of Allah, then you have to recognize when you're harming people because Allah would not approve of you harming people coming up on the street and taking their cell phone and things like this. Mm -hmm. And so this is the way. And you see, we don't even have to talk about Buddhism at all. We're talking about right at the depth of the religion is 
good behavior and bad behavior and what is approved of uh, through our society and other things like this. Uh, so um, at least at that level, what we're talking about is dukkha, dukkha naroda, to come out of it, to recognize what we're doing is harmful and stop doing it. And that is the basis of every religion. Mm-hmm. But what makes the religions different is not only the vocabulary, but all the various magic that's mm-hmm. brought in to try to solve that issue mm-hmm. of how can we, in fact, twist the thing around so that what I actually want to do is considered right. Mm-hmm. So I can feel good about my wrongdoing. <laughs> yeah. Which is in Buddhism, we think of that as just the wrong view of thinking I can get away with it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So one more point then is that, but the other side of religion is, no, wait a minute, you can't get away with it. You got to follow the rules. You will get caught eventually. Only then will you get mercy, but before you got to get caught first. And mm-hmm. so uh, this is what the Buddha then would re- would talk about as ordinary right view. So wrong view is I can get away with it. Right view is, oh, no, you can't. You're going to get caught. And those are the rules that we have. We keep telling ourselves what to do mm-hmm. out of our ordinary right view. But ultimately, noble right view is, no, look at what you're doing. Let's do an investigation. What the heck is going on here? And you're using it in the sense of, uh, who am I? Mm -hmm. Rather than in the sense of what's going on. Because what's going on takes us immediately right into looking at the process of what's going on, rather than looking for this, uh, who am I, this I that's in there someplace. And become because some people come to the point that there is an I in there. But basically, if we uh, attend wisely to the Four Noble Truths, we come to understand there's no self in there. Well, the the process was, as I said, it was like this astonishing like regression. Any any moment that there's something which one could could contract around as an I. It immediately is revealed as as non-existent or as right, it puts it. <laughs> it, um, you know it arises and passes and it changes over time like even if there's something even if you feel into something stably like you feel into one perception or one sort of consciousness stably for a while you realize that that apparent stability is upon investigation like it's like a candle Right, like, uh-huh. and looks like it's one flame burning, but actually it's coming into it's, existence. It's not right. It's constantly a process. Okay, yes, but see, here's here's part of the point that I was trying to make before, but maybe I can say it better now. Is is that in going into that kind of class, you brought already a set of skills that were somewhat developed. Yeah. So that you could come to that, to where people who have no skills, when they start asking, who am I, they wind up with different answers based upon the levels of ignorance that they have. So yeah. congratulations, you actually got out of that class what was intended. But it's yeah. not a beginner's question. No. 
I can see that. I can see how you need to be able to have enough. Uh, you need to have kind of charted that terrain enough to be able to kind of see things, to, for things to have started to unstick a bit, right? Like you need to be mm-hmm. able to, to see the, the, you need to be able to kind of observe, observe the arisings and passings. And to do that, there needs to be some samadhi and there needs to be some experience mm-hmm. with it because otherwise it does feel, it could feel like there are these cells, the, a self there. Exactly. Okay. I like your concept of sticky. Mm. And this is, this is what I mean by that. That when we have a state of sukha mm. and we can be in that state, then that's almost like a Teflon state. So when mm-hmm. these feelings arise, they don't stick to us. We can say, I see you. I can see that. Okay. Yeah. And, and it keeps it coming. And so we're talking with a slightly different language, but we're talking about exactly the same thing. Well, that's, that's the other thing that I've noticed a lot about uh, the, the like more insight practices and more samadhi practices. And I just, they are like, it's, just, it's such a subtle difference of emphasis, but like essentially a state of any samadhi, a state of any like being here now, you need to let go of a lot of self to be here now. Because if you're holding yes. on to self, you're holding on to a construct, you're not here now. <laughs> right, exactly. And that pa- then that uh, self is a piece and part of the past. It's part of the Sankara. Yeah. It's yeah. the sewer itself, in fact. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you're doing a practice which is deliberately deconstructing or investigating with a, with a view towards deconstruction, essentially, you are being, you are, it will lead you to being here now. So you're getting to the same place. Whereas if you're doing a practice which is more geared towards being here now, well, you're not going to get here now unless you do a certain amount of deconstruction, which will require a certain amount of investigation. That's a good point. Um... We actually do have to do that deconstruction in order to get here now. We have to wake up. We have to gladden the mind. We have to start looking at what's going on, do some investigation, taking that deep breath, and all of that kind of brings us into the here now. Yeah. Because the here now is generally a whole lot bigger. I mean, you can understand even when someone wakes up in the morning, they wake up only just gradually a little bit. It takes a little while to become fully awake. Okay, that same thing is also true about being in the here now, that it's actually a process of gradually waking up out of the past future system of hindrance into the here now. It also has the quality of how open can we get? I think we lost our video. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's back. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, I, I, uh, I, open. In fact, be here now is not a state; it's a process of opening. Yeah. Filling in the moat, taking down the banner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. In fact, that's correct. Um, and so, uh, by filling in the moat and destroying the banner, 
that means that we're not identifying with things. Because whenever we identify with anything, it's generally always in the past. In other words, I'm unlikely to identify right now with Republicans for the very first time. Mm. Normally, people who identify with Republicans have done that over and over and over and over and over again. So being a Republican is not just in the past, it's also a habit now. And mm-hmm. so the likelihood for, of them to hear something nice has happened to the Democrats, and they like it because it sounds good, is very low, because mm-hmm. they'll immediately, I'm a Republican, therefore I don't like what happens good to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a kind of sleepness. They actually, generally, when they have that attitude, they're not really even listening very closely to the news anyway. Mm. They're not really paying attention to what's going on because they've already got uh, a position that they've taken. All they're doing is scanning for something to confirm the bias. Exactly. That's why they call it confirmation bias. We're looking for a way to confirm what we already believe. People can do that though, and all like I notice I do that when I'm um, when I'm in get like read sometimes when I'm reading or if I'm online and I'm I'm say I'm looking at something related to uh, the Dharma or practice. I will it's it's like a process of like I will scan it to see if it confirms um, the kind of opinions, beliefs, and bi- and biases that I have. You know, we can, we can, it's easy to kind of say, oh, that's what, that's what people do in politics. But actually, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. I do the same thing around um, practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. We look for things that we agree with that's already there. But occasionally we're open to something yeah. new. Yeah. And the more we remember to be open, then the more likely we are to be open. Yeah. to something new as opposed to trying to put our past on this new object so that we can understand it yes but then even that even that interestingly that's a that's a habit to get into right it's a habit to get into being open-minded and to not constantly needing the present moment to confirm something about your your views or your identity or your past that's a habit uh-huh exactly so, so. what, what? You're exactly right. Yeah. So it's a habit to be developed of being open, to be here now. Yeah. Exactly. That's actually the very definition of sati. Yeah. To wake up. Yeah. That's our number one goal. That's our number one uh, uh, skill to be developed, is to wake up, to open up. And we learn to open more and more and more so that we become more fully open that's also a process of, of awakening yes if we don't wake up fully woken up we wake up in gradual stages mm. that happens when we wake up in the morning it happens when we wake up immediately when we recognize aha i see you mara that's actually a little process that's going on in the mind you wouldn't believe how fast the mind is and like that it's just all over the place it's a really shaky mm-hmm. tool um, and so getting that mind to settle down is a good, useful tool. <laughs> a hell of a lot needs to happen to, to spot, to do that, aha, I see you process. Uh-huh. 
Well, imagine this. The human brain is possibly the most complex uh, item in the universe. Mm. That's how complex it is. They say that the number of neuron connections are far, far, far greater than the number of stars in all of the galaxies. Yes, yeah, astonishing. That's a, that is like unbelievably complex. And so all of these things are happening in there. But that also means that we do have the space to change. Neurons grow, neurons die, new pathways are formed, and the whole human brain is a process of reconfiguring itself mm-hmm. so long as we keep learning. So it's like emptiness on a kind of neurological level, right? That's a way of saying it. Exactly. Exactly. We're always really empty. And fluid and and able to create, uh, to create, recreate, die, create, recreate, die on a kind of like endless. And yet we somehow got stuck into a pattern, possibly because that was the easy way at that time. And so we developed always the easy way out. Mm. And so this is the issue that we have to bring up is, is that, well, what is right effort? Because we actually do have to take an effort to get, get ourselves out of the rut we're in. Mm. And so we have to, but it's a, uh, because we keep getting ourselves back into those ruts, that means we have to each time take the right effort to get ourselves out of that rut, mm. which basically means to com- stop getting into the rut of the past and take the effort that it takes to be here now, to keep coming back and coming back. And by doing so, we're developing a marvelous skill Mm. to be Mm. present, to be here now, to wake up, to see what's going on, to investigate, and to begin to feel the way we want to feel, as opposed to feeling the way that we are in the habit of feeling. Mm. And so this, go ahead. Understanding that, um, I suppose it's like you could call it the law of cause and effect, or you could call it karma. It's like understanding that what arises depends on what has uh, what what has come before, and that invites a kind of understanding of like that plasticity or emptiness, the flu- the potential fluidity of self and experience. Exactly true. Exactly so. The whole quality of uh, sunyata uh, or emptiness comes from the perspective of, you probably heard um, Anicca uh, 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 Sabe, Sabe uh, Sankara Anicca, Sabe um, uh, Sankara Dukkha, and then Sabe Dhamma Anatta. What we're really getting at is that there's no core anywhere. Not just no core in any of the Sankaras or the put together things that fall back apart, but that there is no core within anything. There's no self. An example of that is gold is actually empty. Mm-hmm. It's empty of value. Mm-hmm. There's no value in gold. And yet, look how much value it has on the open market. $2,500 an ounce the last time we looked, okay? Why? 
the only thing about gold there is 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 that it's soft, it's heavy, it's some people think that it's pretty, it's malleable. You can make jewelry out of it. Like who needs jewelry? Yeah. But the point of it is now they find out that it's excellent conductor of electricity and that it doesn't rot away. And that's why they use it as industrial stuff in computers is because it's a really good conductor of electricity. And it also has a very low melting point. And so they use it as solder. And then the solder itself uh, is uh, subject to acid rain with the tin and the lead that will decompose but gold connections don't rust. And so it's got a great industrial use, but they don't use it very often because it's so dang expensive. <laughs> yeah. If, if they dug up all the gold out of the ground that they dug up and put it to industrial use, um, that would be, I mean, the industry would use all of it, but no, more than half of the stuff goes into uh, the gold reserves and uh, jewelry stores and gold buying and hoarding of gold. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Well, you know that, you know, the, the South, there's a really interesting uh, kind of vignette in the history of money, because obviously the, the, the idea of gold as having this value is, is clearly, clearly empty, clearly absurd. There's a South Sea island or there's, in the South Sea Islands, they have these statues of these big heads. Yes. And they, and they are Easter worth, Island. Yeah, similar to um, similar. They're, they're worth that they're, they're considered like extremely valuable, and it's like an enormous gift would be from one island to give another island. They would sail over with the head, and they would give it as a head. And it, they obviously have no real value, but people will will give you know livestock. Uh, Fishing rights, right. all this like stuff to for the ownership of that head. And there's even there's a story about a head that sunk as it was going from one island to the other island. And they arrived at the other island and they were like, oh, "I'm so sorry, there was a storm and the head sunk." And they basically decided it didn't matter. Like that, the, who owns the head at the bottom of the sea is still just as important and valuable as a head that's on land. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful yeah. uh, that solved the problem somebody was wise when they got the villagers to agree that well you own that statue sorry it's in the drink but uh, <laughs> it's yours yeah um, yeah I suppose I'm just I'm, the question I kind of keep coming back to and I do have to go in a minute what time is it how many minutes past the hour do you make it uh, it's, um, 57 minutes past the hour. But my, the kind of thing which I'm constantly coming back to is there's all, it's all, it's all kind of coming. I'm the, the, the kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? The phrase I'm looking for, like the, the playground in meditation or the, the the area of, of learning the kind of edge right like mm -hmm. of of where i'm exploring in meditation and it's really interesting actually experimenting with a different method and seeing how it's ultimately getting it's ultimately the same thing it's just a different way of getting there and actually that is helpful i feel because it slightly turns down my attachment to a specific method do you know what i mean mm -hmm. um but 
I suppose the question I constantly come back to and I'm constantly trying and I'm using as a way of kind of embedding or as a kind of med, uh, uh, sati bell in life is just like how to live from the wisdom of those states, sort of. It's like how coming back from, from this unsticky, fluid, dynamic, boundless sense of self, then how it's like how to bring that joy and that fluidity and that lightness and that openness with me into my relationship to work, into my relationship with my children, into the way I <laughs> my okay. dad. I understand. Yeah. Number one, we have already covered this. Yes. Number two, we need to cover it again. Number three is going to take longer than we have right now to cover that, and that's okay. It's an excuse for you to call next time. Yeah, I don't need an excuse. It's it's too much fun to need an excuse. <laughs> okay, Matt. Well, thanks for your help, and I hear that you put that. Um, uh, does it actually come up as a spreadsheet? Yes, the, uh, it comes spreadsheet. It's on there. I'm I'm impressed. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Damarati. Okay, thank you. We'll All see right. you. Go well. <laughs> okay, let's see if we can do it that way.